What is up, everybody, and welcome into episode 60 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host who will be joining us shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. After Mike and I get all caught up, we'll talk about the basics of drum tuning. Our featured artist this time is session drummer and producer Mr. Stephen Wolf. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out the Evans Caftone drum heads. We'll get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Oh, that was pretty close, man. Man, I was like super early compared to you, but... Really? Yeah. In my, in my head, we almost flammed. It was pretty tight. <laughs> it's episode 60, baby. How you doing? It is episode 60. Yeah, it's I'm pretty cool, good. man. How are you? Yeah? I'm good, man. Uh, I'm in the middle of uh, bingo. Bingo, in, yeah. Bingo yeah. game. I'm in the middle of bingo game. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in the middle of drum camp, and I've got Mark's book right in front of me. So, yes. Uh, so we're going to yes. have to go through that maybe next week. Yeah, I think that would be great. Um, and... Uh, I feel very lucky that I've been able to be in the room when he's taught a few of those things. So I feel like I have some extra insight on it and been able to ask some questions about it. So we could definitely talk about that. But yeah, uh, no, everything's good, man. I, we've we've got some new updates going on on Mike'sLessons.com that I think will help the students. So I'm really excited about that. We just launched an update where now our timer is actually attached to your account. So when you turn on the timer while you're practicing the lessons, as soon as you press stop on the timer, it creates a practice log for you. So you can come back to that specific lesson two years from now, and you'll know, okay, I put in four hours of time on this, and I left off at 65 BPM. That's so, crucial. Yeah, I think yeah. that was one of the things I, I noticed on the original beta that that like the practice took you off to a different screen or something it did. like that. Yeah. yeah, well, it covered the screen, and it wasn't connected to your account. It was more yeah. like, hey, we have a widget that does this. So now now you don't leave the screen. Everything's there. And I encourage our students, as soon as you start watching that video, press the timer because I think that watching the video is part of – you should count that as practice time, right? That's you're a learning. good point. I mean I think uh, we overlook that research. I think anytime you're spending researching or reading or studying, that is practice time. That was Absolutely. one thing that my when I was in grad school, my teacher made sure that I – that I made note of that because so much of college is, is researching and studying and I was getting frustrated like I can only get on the kit for like a half hour 45 minutes a right. day he's like yeah but you're rehearsing like five hours a day with different ensembles you're studying you're transcribing for your classes like that's all practice so don't absolutely get, you know, don't let the anxiety of not actually sitting at the kit kind of cripple you yeah even what we're going to be talking about today tuning that's to me sitting in your room with a 10 inch tom and trying to figure out how to tune your drums that's that should definitely be considered practice yeah uh, that's exactly. all adding to your sound and making you a better player so we did launch that update and then we are beta testing for the rest of the week a new thing that's taken us a very long time to create which is we now have our own version of youtube or vimeo so our students will now be uploading videos directly to mikeslessons.com not using embed codes or anything like that and they can feel safe knowing they're not uploading it to the public like you have to be a paid subscriber to see these videos yeah. and and while you're uploading your video there's a little button that says i want mike to review this that's giving me permission then to use that video in the live broadcast and give it an honest critique some people just want to say look i'm just uploading this so i can see it and i can hold myself accountable and some people really do want the critique but the last thing I want to do is be critiquing somebody's video that wasn't asking for that critique, you know? Um, yeah, right. Or I critique the wrong thing. Uh, yeah. I just rip their hands to pieces, and they just wanted to know about their time, but I, they didn't <laughs> say it in the video. So, so now we've got that, which I think will be really cool, and we can tie that into the account. So when you finish off a course or when you finish off a lesson, now we can say, all right, you said you did it. You pressed complete. Prove it. Show me the video. So 
all we're trying to do right now is build more and more and more accountability into online education because I think that's the biggest thing that's missing. So I'm stoked on that stuff. What's going on with you, bud? I went to the Roland had in New York uh, press conference on some of their new stuff Mm -hmm. yesterday. Was that Carter sent me some pics from it? Yeah, so they have a you know a, a new Rolls Royce kit. I mean, it's a TD fifty that's pretty ridiculous. Um, <laughs> the one with like, like the real looking bass drum, right? Yeah, they're going to offer that. I think she said the first hundred people that order the kit get the free uh, bass drum upgrade, which is basically just like a shallow. I think it's a twenty inch drum, right? That's so their bass drum trigger device now is something that takes over the entire drum head. Wow. On that model, but the okay. regular the regular kit that you just would buy, you know, at the store, it's going to have just like the. I mean, I think it's like a fourteen inch bass drum pad. Okay, maybe sixteen. I don't remember, but yeah, it was cool to see that because that that kind of thrust it into the um, the more realistic application for me. Like I would I would take that on a gig if I have a something that looks like a bass drum. I don't want to be sitting behind a fourteen inch pad and. and it's just something about it aesthetically right. I just yeah. can't get with. So this this was super cool. <clears throat> she hinted that that will be available as an aftermarket uh, option as well, just the, the head trigger thing. So you could put it on your own bass drum. Oh, wow. That would be really cool. Yeah. That would so be really we'll see cool. see that. That's coming out. The, the, the hi-hat is really sounding pretty darn realistic now. That's always okay. been my, uh, my critique of electronic kits is the hi-hat yeah. just doesn't respond well, but... This one, it was getting kind of all the nuance, and the pad felt really? more like hi-hats. The ride cymbal's been updated, so it's a lot more nuanced. The wow. ride cymbal and the snare drum are now USB, which allows for a whole lot more um, information to be passed back and forth, so you can get way more samples per wow. per drum and cymbal. Some Man. serious upgrades. I mean, it's, That's a, cool. it's a mega expensive kit, but it's... Sure. And they, they, I think this is the first kit they allow you to upload your own samples, which they've never done. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. And it's pretty neat. And they had another little, you know, the other side of the spectrum, a little device that's um, it's like a small condenser that clips to your cajon or acoustic guitar or anything. And then that signal goes through a processor that you can either add effects to it and just play it acoustically, or you can have it uh, fire samples. Really? So you can blend like 808 kick sounds with your cajon and snare sounds. Okay. It has like a high pass and a low pass filter built in, so it it just responds. It's not triggers; it's responding to your your actual audio. Pretty neat. That I'm looking forward to getting and really checking it out. Um, and so we'll probably around Nam time, I'll have actual reviews of both of those coming. Sure. Pretty neat. Yeah, I think drummers. Or as drummers, we forget how big of a company Roland is until yeah. you go to their booth at NAMM. And you're like, oh, that's right. They make everything. So clearly, they just like Yamaha, they have access to all this technology that can yeah. be brought between different parts of our industry. Because, yeah, when you go to Roland, it's like, oh, you guys – I mean, even at, for what I do, I do live broadcasting. They make uh, camera switchers, like giant, really, oh, really? nice $15,000 <laughs> multi-camera switchers. And – Honestly, when I was deciding between Roland and Yamaha, that was a consideration. I was like, you know, Roland could supply me with what I need for video as much as they could for audio. So, uh, you know, and then same with Yamaha. It's like, well, Yamaha isn't just electric. You know, it's not just DTX. It's the Yamaha speakers that are sitting on my desk right now. And it's the Yamaha boards that I've used to mix with. So these companies have a lot of resources to draw from, but I'm excited. And I was shocked to see, I didn't want, I didn't know that Carter was a Roland guy. And uh, yeah. we're talking about Carter McLean, uh, Lion King drummer. And I was shocked to see that he was part of any electric company because he's such an organic drummer. I mean, 
That dude doesn't even use close mics. Part of the Lion King show is electronics. That so makes sense. He does sense. have a couple. I think he has the um, Octopad in the pit and okay. a couple pads. So it's, that it's makes been sense. part of the show since before he was the drummer. So he needs it. Yeah, he has to. I, th- I think that that's one of the the crucial elements to any endorsement is do you need it or do you or was it just like somebody offered you some free stuff right, right. yeah it's like sometimes you just need it so that that's cool but yeah he said that the kit was pretty insane i got to see him play it a little bit and he was playing the way he plays he just sent me a quick video and it was it was very like you said it was very nuanced it was it sounded yeah. like carter playing drum set so yeah one i don't know I, I mean oh go ahead i'll say I, it's it's kind of the, the 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 weird paradox of electronic kits. Like they're trying to get them more and more to sound like acoustic drums, as far as the nuance. But maybe I'm I'm the odd man out. But when I use electronics, I just want one sample to hit hard, and that's it. I don't I don't want to miss hit the snare and have it fire like a, a rim shot accidentally. Right. Yeah. 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 So it, you know, I get it. They, they that's that's their goal, but. For me, if I want all that nuance, I'm just going to play my real drums. Quite honestly, that's that's uh, yeah. I don't, <laughs> bro. You already know that it. I've I've I been in it. fights with Roland Reps before <laughs> over this. <laughs> hey, are we going to take that down and put up a real drum set? Oh, is this not real? Am I not touching this right now? <laughs> all right, Roland guy, it's real, but it's not. No, ah, but so, it is great. It is great. It, I mean, it, it'll be a great tool for a lot of people. For my I, uses, I use I, electronics simply for the electronic sound which means right. minimal dynamics just a quick punch and get out of the way honestly i think you know as a yamaha guy I'll, I'll put this on a yamaha thing just so that i'm not like talking against a company that i don't play for but i would be totally happy if if yamaha shipped it with the maple custom and a ton of room to upload your own stuff yeah it's like i don't need these mm-hmm. 90 kits taking up all this space with like you know it, like space jam 102 and i'm like what i don't <laughs> Tyco these are, drums. <laughs> yeah, these are yeah, exactly. It's like I we have access to amazing drum sample libraries. Take all of your predetermined crap out of there and let me fill it with the kits that I need because you're taking up all of the memory with those kits. Just yeah. give me one good drum set and you know honestly, you know we have 3 of the top end DTX kits here for our campers and every time I watch them practice, I look down at the brain and they're always on Maple Custom. They're yeah. never on drum and bass. They're never on R&B. They're always <laughs> yeah. on, you know, they're on drum set. And that's all yeah. you want out of it. Or you want to put your own stuff for your specific gig. So, cool, man. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, uh, I'm glad you got to check that out and definitely keep us up to date on all the stuff that they're doing as you yeah. get a chance to test out. Well, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit of education. Now, let's talk about tuning. Uh, this is yep. something that is extremely important. You said that you had an audio question about this? Yeah, it came in from Nick Murray. So let's check out his question before we dive in. Hey guys, this is Nick Murray from Poughkeepsie, New York. A long time listener and lover of the show. Uh, this is hopefully my third question on the show. And uh, this one is in regards to drum set tuning. Um, you know, over the past, uh, what, 57 episodes, you guys have sort of touched on your techniques for tuning your own drums and uh, general techniques that are out there for tuning drums. And I'm just really struggling on, you know, struggling to get the right sound without having to mute them down too much. Um, I wondered what your approaches were and what your observations were on, like, on tuning in general uh, compared to the size of the drum and like from top head to bottom head, is it in unison? Are they in intervals? And then from drum to drum, you know, do you tune them in fourths? Is it, you know, does it depend on, you know, the gig, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I think 
think it'd be a good discussion to have and uh, really be useful to have everything all in one spot. You know, like I said, I think you've talked a bunch, a bunch about it over the you know series, but it'd be good to hear it all at once. Poughkeepsie back in the back in the saddle. <laughs> yeah, I was just in Poughkeepsie uh, a couple of weeks ago. I went to the the Culinary Institute of America and had lunch. Yeah, you did. It was wow. delicious. My first experience with French food, but it was kind oh, of like wow. a modern French cuisine. Sure. It wasn't super buttery. It was good. That's awesome, man. Very cool. Anyway. Well, so. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I think it's a it's an awesome question, and we definitely have, like he said, we've glossed over it, but we've never really dove in deep into it. So why don't you give me a little breakdown on your general tuning practices? Yeah, well, I guess we can start from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Maybe so. Bass drum, bass drum for me was the most difficult to figure out. It took a long time for me to figure it out, and I've kind of come to the basic conclusion that it needs to be kind of as low as it can go without it sounding papery. For most situations, if I'm playing on a bebop kit, I'm going to tune it up more like a floor tom. But for most situations, the batter head is about as low as it can go before it starts to have a discernible pitch, and then the front head. Similar, either as low as it can go or just a little bit tighter, so it gives me a little bit extra low end. I found that bass drums are really influenced by the room. Yes. So the, the low end response is going to be totally different depending on what room you're in. So you have to you have to constantly adjust it. But in general, batter head is about is just above the wrinkle point, and then the front head is as low or maybe just half a turn higher, and that seems to just work in most situations. It's it's a kind of a frustrating drum because you can't really hear the low end when you're sitting at the kit i just had to just acknowledge that like i'm not going to hear it like it sounds in front ever right absolutely i mean that's i will find someone if i'm at a clinic i'll find someone even if they're not a drummer and just say hey can you just go stomp on this because i've got to get out front because i'm all in my head from what i hear as as the drummer's point of view and i think there are one thing i've noticed from going from uh dw and then I was a Yamaha guy, and now I'm a Gretsch guy. And this is over the course of 15, 16 years. S- certain drums project completely forward, and some project a little bit more towards the drummer. And I've always felt mm. that DW made drummers bass drums. Like when you hit a DW kick, you feel it through your whole body, and you're almost getting more low end than what's projecting. And I remember when I moved to Yamaha for a short time, my sound guy just was in heaven and i was not i was like this feels like i'm hitting a cardboard box (laughs) and he's like well i'm telling you right now your drums have never sounded that good and then i heard my singer could play drums at the time and i said will you go play my kit and when he played it i was like oh so i have to just sit back there hitting cardboard boxes (laughs) knowing (laughs) that the crowd's getting all that amazing sound like well that's not fun and that has nothing to do with yamaha there's just some drums that project forward and i mean there's a reason why guys still use the recording custom that they got back in the 90s it's like Dude, the mics love them, you know. Yep. Yep. So I, I I agree. I think uh, some drums you almost have to record it to hear how it's how it's picking up the tuning. Uh, I'm playing a twenty by fourteen now. I would say that I tune it a little bit tighter than what you're talking about, only because the size. But I do this when I if if you tune say like a twenty two by eighteen uh, traditional rock bass drum or new school rock bass drum. If you tune that too tight, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't have the properties to give you that almost bop sound it, it yeah. just gets kind of like bunk bunk it's just yep. not yeah. fun and then when you keep going down with it all this low end starts showing up and it's it's really amazing and i think one thing that we need to point out for that was nick right that's yeah. that question yeah one thing we need to point out nick is a lot of times i went through this with ash 
uh, Sohn when we were in Ireland, he was saying he was saying that his bass drum out of between myself, Mark, and his sounded the absolute worst in the room. And he was 100% sure that it would record better than any other bass drum in the room. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, I know it's not fun, but trust me, as soon as we mic this up, <laughs> you guys are going to be like, bong, bong. And my lame, flappy kick is going to sound incredible. And sure was, enough. Was it super low? Super low. And yeah. he had a ton of muffling in it. Yeah. And, as soon as, and then same thing. We took those exact same kits to the club to do our clinic. And on stage before the mics, Mark and I were singing. And then we put the mics in, and they didn't know what to do with Mark's kit. He had an 18 tuned up. Uh, they were like, can you cut a hole in the head? Mark's like, no. Uh, and then you know, they, they didn't even – like literally they just rose the fader on Ash's kick, and it was like the whole – even everyone that was in the room was like, oh. Yep. So, so yeah, it's, it, it depends on what you're doing. So kick, I'm with you on that. What about snare? Do you – I think we all understand tuning as far as getting all the tension rods even, right? That's the point yeah. of tuning I mean, your drum. I guess that that would be tensioning or balancing, and then tuning would be getting into the pitch that you want. I don't. Right. I mean, it, it's it's terminology semantics, but sure. snare drum. Um, my starting point is always with the bottom head pretty high. It's yeah. tuned up um, almost as high as it can go without getting to the point where I feel like it's going to just blow off the the counter hoop. <laughs> and then the batter head, I kind of go. What I do is I tune it up really tight to kind of seat the head and, and yes. get it all there. And then I just back it down until, like, I turn the snares off and I just keep tapping it, back it down until the low end starts to blossom. Hmm. And that's kind of like wow. my medium tight starting point. Yeah. That would be what I would use on most gigs. Uh, most of the time when I have to record, that ends up being too tight. So I just back it down another quarter turn or so. Right. But that's kind of it. I kind of I try to find a spot where I can get a decent response, but I'm not choking out the low end. It's like a fine balance. You can feel it as soon as you hit that spot. It becomes like a, it just blossoms. The tone just blossoms. Yeah. No, I'm with you. And then and like you said, a quarter turn past that on the way up, all of a sudden it starts to choke. Um, there's yeah. a feel that you get. It's just it's it's weird. You would think there'd be a ton more response out of the drum because you've tightened it, and that's not the case. It actually feels more like hitting wood rather yeah. than hitting a, a drum head that has that flex to it and a little bit of that trampoline vibe. I mean, I love when when your snare is tuned properly for you. It it helps you out with the strokes. You know, everything yeah. is just buttery and the sticks flying up. And you're like, wow, I don't even have to try. You know, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I'm with you on that. I do the same thing on the bottom head. I'm not overly obsessed with the pitch difference between bottom head and top head like i am on my toms yeah. um so i'm really doing it i would say i tune my bottom head by my thumb i press in on yeah. the head with my thumb and based off that tension i can tell where it's at yeah I mean, if you want to get super nerdy my bottom head usually ends uh either at a440 or a g below that that's just where it ends up most of the time a440 is really high there's some drums when i try to get it up that high that i can i just think it's going to just explode so i usually <laughs> shoot for g or f sharp or something like that but in general it's it's basically as high as i can go before it's just over tightening and not the pitch isn't increasing any further right. that seems to be u- pretty universal like most yeah. most guys are doing yeah that. i'm with you tom's um well to address his question and my preference i tune the batter and the bottom head identical uh 90 of the time it works on almost every drum some of my older uh three ply drums the bottom head needs to be like a whole step tighter just to make it work for whatever reason but i like them both exactly the same pitch gives me the 
purest tone, the maximum resonance, and then I can I can adjust if it's resonating too much, which would answer his question. Um, that's when you get into making the bottom head tighter or lower than the batter head. The TuneBot app is is the best reference point, I think, for that because it just yeah. gives you all the, you know, you can say I want maximum sustain and I want the pitch to be in the medium range and it'll give you the exact notes. Um, right. You can say you want minimum sustain, same exact pitch, but it'll tell you how to adjust the top and bottom Tops head accordingly. You know, I've always wondered, so we have, I'm sure you've seen all of the super high-speed footage of hitting a cymbal or hitting a drum. You see the membrane just flex on Mythbusters or whatever it is. Um, I've always wanted to do something like that with super, I don't know how to say this, but almost high-speed audio where I would love to slow down the audio so much to find out. Are there two pitches happening? If you slow it down enough, do you hear the top head and then the resonant head? Because I've always thought in my head that by tuning the bottom head tighter, I could get an upward pitch bend a little bit. And by tuning the bottom head looser, I could get a downward pitch bend. But I can't hear it all becomes one tone. You know, yeah. I don't I never hear it as doom round. That would take eight seconds for that to happen. Yeah. But I'm wondering, does that actually happen? You know, if you slowed it down enough, do you get do you get two pitches? Yeah, I've noticed up? that sometimes. I think it you can't I think it's a drum has to be tuned low enough for that to be a factor. Right. Whereas when you go kind of medium and up, I'm kind of just hypothesizing from some experience that right. that it just becomes canceling it out more than contributing. So when the yeah. when the top head is tighter, it's just canceling out the sustain. So the decay becomes quicker. Like, I know uh, Steve Ferroni tunes his bottom heads on his toms, I think, a fifth higher than his batter head, which is an extreme difference. But he's playing in big you know, sheds and, and venues where his toms need to hit and get out of the way. Yeah. So if you hear his drums, they, they had his kid at NAMM a couple of years ago, and I just went around and tapped the drums, and they sounded not, not great <laughs> acoustically. Right. Because the toms you hit him was just like a... Poof. Like it didn't do anything. It's like a right. Poof. Like what? Is that? that doesn't sound like anything. It was right. s- the the pitch difference was so extreme that the sustain was almost zero. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 again. It's like are you playing for microphones? Or are you playing for right. live unamplified? And I and I notice it a lot different, or I mean a lot more, I should say, in my bigger drums where the time does take longer. So I I can hear it a little bit more on like say a sixteen by sixteen. Where right. it's 16 yeah. inches of travel time for those sound vibrations to to actually vibrate the resonant head. Where with my 12 inch tom, like you said, it's either high pitched or low pitched. But people really, guys, I I really beg you to do this today. Take your smallest tom off your kit, take it in your bedroom, tune it up, get it as good as you can get it, hit it a few times, and really enjoy that. And then just go to the bottom head and completely undo one tension rod and hit the drum again. And that's when the magic of resonant heads will sink in. You will realize that that drum is completely useless. Your $2,000 DW rack tom with gold (laughs) hardware is a piece of crap if you completely detention one tension rod on the bottom. You need to understand that those bottom heads are extremely important, and they're called the resonant heads for a reason. And what Mike and I are saying is that bottom head relationship between the bottom head and the top is extremely important and whether that bottom head is in tune. I've seen people just switch out heads like, oh, yeah, my top heads were wrecked, so I took the good ones off the bottom and put them on top. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> you can't do that. Like you should really care about the bottom heads. And there is a time, even though you never hit them, there's a time about a year and a half, two years deep into heavy playing that that Mylar will kind of 
it, it'll have its day and it's time to change your bottom heads. Now, for some people, that moment is when the drums really start to sound good because they start to die. And yeah. people are like, oh, yeah. finally, thing just wouldn't shut up. Now it's hitting the zone. But just know that that Mylar will run its course for sure. So Yeah, and as far as the the pitch relationship between top and bottom, um, I think it, that is not so much a tone thing for me. It's a feel thing. So if you like your toms to feel gushy, Mm-hmm. Then you want to have a lower batter head and a higher bottom head. If you if you need a good snap and, and response, then the batter head should be tighter than the lower head to get you the same pitch that you would get if you had them both exactly the same. Yeah, I don't like a tighter batter head and a lower bottom head. That no, it just doesn't work. I because I don't play a lot of notes, so it just it's kind of defeating the purpose. So if I'm right. gonna if I'm gonna have them tuned differently, it's gonna be a low batter in a slightly slightly, slightly. higher bottom yes i agree i agree uh, but i, I think th- you know you and i have said this so many times on this podcast but when it comes to tuning just experiment guys please don't be afraid take the drum in your room and start messing around and take the head off and just inspect your drum and uh, I, I even tell my students when they're asking about like should i get aquarian or evans or remo and i'm like whatever your smallest drum is Go buy top heads f- from all those companies for your smallest drum and test it out. You know, yeah. Uh, don't and, and and see what you like because we all have differences. But I, I'm I'm with you. Uh, my toms are top and bottom are the same, and then that gives me the most pure tone possible. And then and I use the TuneBot to get it there. And then from there, uh, I it took me a long time. I think Nick brought this up, but it took me a long time to realize it's okay to muffle a top end gorgeous drum set i always thought like i think for a long time i thought you know at this price it should just sound great no muffling it should be amazing that's not the case and and the room has so much to do with that yeah there's just rooms that are too live right and more than anything and sometimes just a little bit of muffling on the bottom head is all you need because if you're getting that long high pitch ring it's probably the bottom head that's causing that which is why again back to experimenting uh a friend of mine years ago suggested putting a Remo Power Stroke Three on the bottom of, of the floor tom. Wow! And it was because it, it does, yeah, it does exactly what you know Benny Gribbs cotton ball thing. It, it does exactly what we're going to do anyways. We're going to take yeah. two pieces of gaff tape and slap them on the bottom <laughs> right. head. So it's like, well, they already made that for you. Yeah, and it's not like a. It's not something you would think. Oh, let me put a thick pre muffled head right. on the bottom of my floor tom. But floor tom is usually the one that that causes the most feedback oh. and the most issues. So. If that's what you're having, try a thicker bottom head. Even on the on the bass drum too. I like a, a fiber skin on the front. I love when uh, the sound guy has the great advice of, "Hey, can you do something with that?" <laughs> yeah. Like, thanks for the tip, bro. And the thanks first like- thing, the first thing we do is grab the tape and tape up the batter head when it's actually the bottom head that's right. causing the problem. Totally, totally. Yeah. I usually just jangle the key around the tension rod so he thinks I did something, and then he goes, "Yeah, it's way better." I'm like, thanks. <laughs> we used to do that in every set, like. Uh, guitars, can you turn down the presence? And my guy's like, dude, I have a freaking Mesa Boogie head. There's no presence now. Like, yeah, yeah. And you just start moving things around. He's like, yeah, way better. Like, whatever. All right, awesome. Well, I think when it comes down to it, it's all about experimentation. But there are some general rules. And I think a good place to start, like Mike said, is get your drum in relative pitch. Get the tension rods to be the same. That's going to take some ear training. Uh, you will notice that there's even a difference between hitting, especially when you get the tune bot, you'll notice when you hit the tension rod that is closest to you on a 16 inch floor tom, and let's say it says 90 hertz, 
and you hit the tension rod that is the furthest away from you, and it says 90 hertz, the one the furthest away from you will sound lower pitched than the one closer to you. The time it takes for those sound waves to make it to you can be shifted, and it's just like a train. Think of it, it's called the red shift. A train coming towards you is going to get higher and higher pitched as it comes to you, and then it goes by, and then it gets lower and lower pitched. So the further away anything that's creating sound is, the lower pitch it's going to have. It's going to be more blue-shifted if we were using spectrum. So just think of it like that and don't freak out. You know, Sometimes when I hear that one that's way away from me and it's a little low-pitched, I actually turn the drum around and bring that tension rod closest to me, and I'm like, yeah, okay, never mind. It was fine. <laughs> so, um, I mean, unless you're going to put your ear right over the middle of the drum, just know that that's a real thing, and it can drive you nuts. So yeah. um, play with this stuff. All right, well, let's get into our featured artist. Our featured artist this time is New York session drummer and producer Stephen Wolf. Looked him up, and uh, dude's got a bit of a discography. Just a little bit. Holy crap. And I'm not talking like back in the day. Uh, he's got a modern discography. And one thing that blew me away was I already knew exactly who he was. I, he was the other guy that did the Osnoy videos besides Weckl. Uh, oh, Osnoy yeah. put out this whole thing like, what, three, four years ago? Yeah, yeah. And he was the other guy. And I was like, I have no idea who that is. I never yep. took the time to research it. And then just now, uh, when I started researching him for this episode of the podcast, I was like, oh, I remember. He's like the super non-busy, super pocket guy yep. that's on those Osnoy videos. Exactly. He came up in the... Um I guess kind of, why don't you describe it? Kind of the smooth jazz R&B world. I think he okay. toured with Grover Washington Jr. for a long time, which that kind of honed that aesthetic of, of simple pocket playing. Dude. Um, and he's a he's a sweetheart of a guy, but he's, he's, he's not self-promoting in any way, which is why we wouldn't, unless you're from New York or you've seen those videos or you're a fan of his work, you wouldn't even know who he is. Um, right. But he's been, and he's kind of, it's, I get, it might be this might be a New York thing. I don't know, but back when drum machines first got introduced, there were a handful of of drummers who said, you know, I'm not going to let a keyboard player take my gig. Okay, I'm going to learn the machines. I'm going to be the one that programs all the drum parts that are going on these records. And there were guys back in the '80s. Sammy Marandino was one of the first guys who just said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna become the guy that's programming these drum machines." So at least the drum tracks are going to sound like a real drummer. And not like impossible, like three layers of hi hats and stuff right. like that. And Steve is like the modern day guy. Okay. So he, early on, he realized the MPC was taking over pop, so he became an MPC master. So a lot of his his early credits, it, it's like you don't know is it live drums or is it program drums because he was hired as the guy to make program drums sound like real drums, like with Avril Lavigne, uh, Beyonce, Perry. Pink, Katy Perry. Uh, so many things um i just love that on his homepage, it's him holding drumsticks over the top of an mpc player <laughs> right right and he's got his akai and then he's holding sticks on top of that and it's it i mean it really if i was an artist it tells me all i need to know it's like okay this guy's got it covered whatever yeah. i need dude's got it covered yeah, and he was one of the first to really embrace the drum sampling technology. So he's, you know, he was using BFT before most people even knew what it was. He's okay. using addictive drums. So he's he's kind of the guy around town that does all the kind of pop, uh, rock crossover kind of things. And you know, a lot of it is on real drums, and then a lot of it is it's. If I don't know what his mix is, it might be fifty fifty. But I think for a while it was mostly programming. Um, but he was programming nuances to make it sound like a live drum track. And I mean, 
you know, we should say because we're talking a lot about the program and stuff. The cat can play, man. Uh, yeah, no, he's he's an amazing drummer. I mean, he really and he knows his stuff. I, I watched a, f- a, a few videos of him this morning. Like uh, he has the feel thing down, and he, like I said, he kind of stays out of the way. He's very studio drummer, if you want to use that term. But I saw him doing this thing for uh, I don't know, maybe HQ percussion or something, and he was talking about his warm up routine and. Most of it, it was like, eh, you know, you can do singles, I can do doubles, and then and then he had this four stroke rough exercise, and he was just playing a paradiddle pattern of four stroke. So it was a four stroke rough, but right hand lead and left hand lead, and then he'd go right hand lead, left hand lead, right hand lead, right hand lead, left hand lead, right hand lead, left hand lead. I was like, oh, I've never even tried a four stroke rough left hand lead, and to to make this sound. Left hand lead, that's going to take me a little bit of time. So I was yeah. like, oh, dude's got his hands together, man. It was really cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was it was great. And he seemed very, like you said, very unassuming. He was not cocky on camera at all. It just seemed like, wow, uh, yeah, this is what I do. So I, I, was, yeah. I was really impressed. But, yeah, and when I saw the discography, oh, my God. And he's, uh, you know, he's a champion of the Ludwig Acrylite. I think he, he says he uses it more than any other drum is the and it had for, for the ability because the, the acrylate for me is kind of an invisible drum in, in the best way possible so when you use that on a track that you know someone's going to be layering loops or samples on top of there's not so much tone and stuff to get in the way so he likes to use that drum a lot because he can just get a good clean snappy or whatever or a dead sound that doesn't take up too much space and then you can layer on samples on top of it it's kind of yeah. the new. I mean, that's the way. It's the way records are made now, for better or for yeah. worse. I love the fact that he said, "I'm not going to just allow this be, to become someone else's gig." No, I think know? that's awesome, man. That's that's <laughs> yeah. uh, it's very New York. Yeah, uh, I love it though. But you know, the other thing that I noticed right away in checking out stuff is, and I don't know if this is the case or if it's just hasn't been updated on his website, but on his website, he doesn't have a drum set endorsement. He's Zildjian, Promark, Evans, Gibraltar, a bunch of other things that are. Uh, electric driven, but yeah. there's no drum set. Uh, yeah, he plays so. mostly old Ludwig's. That's awesome. That's yeah. so cool. Very cool. I love it. Well, guys, definitely check out Stephen Wolf. Uh, it's S T E V E N, and Wolf is exactly as it sounds. So check him out, and and there is quite a bit of content out there on him just playing with artists, and he definitely has that thing going where he. He's clearly playing drums to make the song better, which is yeah. probably why he works as much as he does. Right, and if you want like some drum-heavy stuff, he's on the Osnoy record, Who Gives a Funk? Oh, easy, kid. <laughs> easy. <laughs> uh, yes, that's uh, exactly that's what some, it is. That's some heavy drum stuff right there. Yeah, man. And like I said, check it out. He's uh, There's this whole batch of videos that Oz did with Weckl, and I think... Uh, I can't remember. There might have been somebody else for some reason. I, I'm thinking, but uh, Anton but Fig, it, maybe it might have been. I don't remember. And I know that like it's all mixing together because whatever studio they did it in, there's videos of Weckl and Chris Coleman doing Higher oh, Ground right. in right. that studio. So it's all kind of going together. I watch too many videos of these guys, but uh, <laughs> but anyways, check it out because it's it's such a stark contrast between Weckl playing with Osnoy, which is phenomenal and then Stephen wolf doing it which is phenomenal and you get to see like wow these are both completely valid approaches but completely different so really cool stuff all right well let's get into some candy gear review time now this one is something that i'm really kind of excited about that somebody else has 
picked up the torch on this, which is the Evans Caftone Drumheads. I've made no bones about the fact that Evans is not like – I'm not a, you know the guy that's like Evans rules. But I will say this. They, I think right now – and I know Chris Brady from Aquarian is going to hear this and he's going to want to punch me in my teeth. <laughs> I think Evans is pushing the envelope the hardest with innovation. Just taking chances, trying out stuff, and just and just pushing it. Like, here we go. We're going to make yeah. this. We're going to do this. And it's like, you know what? Right now, if you want to be a leader in anything, you're going to have to try harder than everyone. And I, I can't knock them for doing it. So uh, I was really excited to see that the thing that we've had for a long time, the Remo fiber skin head, they kind of cornered the market on that. And now Evans has the Caftone drum head, which I'm assuming is similar to the fiber skin. Maybe you'll have to tell me. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm completely speculating but i think it's exactly the same uh, <laughs> plastic that was awesome i'm completely, completely speculating but i'm pretty sure they went down and bought a bunch of remo heads and <laughs> no i think it, i mean it's we know that the, all these companies are buying their plastic from mylar from dupont so right i mean i don't know the the ins and outs and i'm not even going to begin to guess what is actually happening but whoever is making this film with the fiber layer on top the evans is very similar to the remo okay if it's not exactly the same it's very similar um with the biggest difference being the evans collar and the evans right. counter hoop and which the, really is what separates these companies how does that exactly. head sit inside the hoop yeah, um, exactly um so yeah it's it's it has their level 360 technology, which for them, they what they did is they made the collar steeper. So then you get more of the flat part of the head onto the bearing edge. Their theory is it'll make it easier to tune. It'll fit on more drums. Um, I put it on um, a couple of different drums. A new on the uh, Modern Drummer 40th Anniversary Maple, which has a 45-degree bearing edge. I put it on that snare. I also put it on a an old 60s Ludwig 3-ply floor tom, which has completely round edges, and it's probably not perfectly in round, and it fit, fit perfectly. There was yeah. no issue of the collar grabbing or anything like that. Um, sonically, um, it felt like it might have been a little bit more open-sounding than the fiber skin. Okay. Because um, I, I use fiber skin a lot. Um, it had just a, it had more high overtones. I was kind of surprised because there's a video demo that I did. Uh, by the way, this this written review is coming out in the next issue. I'm just giving us a little foreshadowing okay. of it. So there'll be a video demo posted in the show links that goes with the magazine, which I think comes out next week for the November issue. Um, so in the video, what I did was I played the snare drum with the Evans Coda G1, and then I did the exact same type of playing with the Caftone, and. It wasn't as huge of a difference recording-wise as I expected it to be. Okay. I could feel a difference. It definitely felt darker and a little softer and warmer. Uh, but it didn't. It wasn't like throwing a tea towel over the drum and getting a totally different timbre. Sure. It was just a little bit more mid-range, a little less high-end, shorter decay. Uh, but it still felt like a head that I could use on on for almost any situation. Right. Uh, yeah. I haven't I haven't tested the durability cuz that was the biggest critique of the Remo fiber skin is that the film will separate and bubble sometimes. Sure. Right. I don't know if these will do that yet. Uh, well, I'll find out over the next couple of weeks as I use it more. Now, have you tried to play it with brushes? Does it have a good texture oh, yeah. that you could use it's, with brushes? It's, yeah, it's got a nice smooth um, brush sound. It has enough grip to get a good sweep, but it doesn't have that gritty um, like sandpaper kind of a texture. Gotcha. It's a little sure. bit smoother. It, yeah, brushes is definitely where it excels. It has that 
old kind of um, Joe Jones kind of sound. Cool, Papa man. Joe Jones. I was actually surprised on their website. They have a, a nice little selector from like darkest to brightest as far as heads. Right, right. And it was actually quite far into the bright. Uh, and I was like, yeah. really? And then when I looked at it, it's a single ply seven mil blended with what they say unique materials. So, uh, and and it looks like they're saying that the tom heads are thinner than the base head. Uh, that's it says. Okay. Uh, made with a seven mil film base and blended with our un- unique materials, these heads are thinner than our base heads to help optimize the sound for smaller drums, higher tunings, and greater tonal response. So I, I thought that was really cool that they're actually. To me, I, I'm going to be 100 percent honest because as a Gretsch artist, all of my Gretsch drums have shipped with a fiber skin on the Rezo head of the base. Right. To me, it was just for looks. It, I, I honestly never even considered hitting the thing or getting it on the top heads, even if Aquarian made it. It just wasn't what I was thinking. Uh, so I think it's cool that they've gone out of their way to not just make this an appearance thing, but try to make this a sound thing that you could actually use and get a, a unique sound out of it. Uh, yeah. And I will say, as an aesthetic person, I, I love that logo that they used on it. It, it yeah. fits this head perfectly. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and they did have a full kit set up at this past NAM with these heads and it I could feel on the toms, um, especially when they were tuned lower. Like I on the drums I have in one, I tuned it up kind of like a bebop sound. Okay, which is perfect for that because it just rounds off the the bite of the toms. Sure, but they had it on a t- on a kit that was tuned a little bit more medium low, and they they sounded really punchy. And the bass drum was was really nice. It was kind of nice. puffy, you know. Puffy awesome sound. Now, do we have any audio of this from your tests? Yeah, I'll drop in. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to tell. I'll drop in the part where I'm playing the G1, and then the second clip will be with the caftone. So you hear the regular G1 coded on a five and a half by fourteen maple snare, and then when it breaks and starts over, that'll be the caftone. Perfect.
All right, guys. Now it's time for some listener questions. And luckily, we have a fresh batch of audio questions from you guys. So we're going to start with AJ. I would assume, I think I know AJ. I think he's from Canada, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think so. I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. Can you give it a go? Nope. <laughs> right on. Here's AJ. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Mike. It's AJ from Toronto. I was just watching Sean Pelton tear up the 2010 Modern Drummer Festival DVD, and it got me thinking. What are some of the most coveted gigs in the drumming world? I mean, you guys both have some pretty dream gigs yourself, but I'm interested to know what you guys might be going after or what you'd be chasing if you weren't doing what you are currently. Thanks for taking my question, and thanks for continuing to do this podcast, and have yourselves a great day. See ya. Wow, great question. Great question. By and the way, really AJ's, hard to answer. Yeah, AJ's a monster. Uh, he's been one of our students for a while, and I've seen some video of him in the studio with his band, and he's he's a legit player, man. So thanks for the question, AJ. Uh, well, while you think of your answer, I'll go first. Uh, obviously, I, I really went very far out of my way to create my dream gig for myself because yeah, it just right. didn't exist. But no matter what you are doing or where you are there's all you'll always look for something else if you're like me i'm a tinkerer so i would say the only thing that i wish for that i don't have and i don't think i'll ever have the opportunity for uh honestly playing live doesn't do it for me or anything like that i just wish i had more time with the campers so there is an aspect of me that wishes i was a college professor so mm. that cuz i feel like i'm just cracking through and then they fly home and i'm like oh if i just had a year with you oh my or two years so yeah Honestly, the music school thing doesn't really interest me that much, but you know, there's this dream in my head of me being 60, and I'm like in this weird, weird part of the building at Berkeley School of Music, and you just, you know, you come see me once a week, and I'm with you for a year, and we're just, and we're just on this journey together where it's like, I just would love to produce these people into the greatest versions of themselves. And it, it's, it's tough at camp where we just start cracking through and they're starting to be vulnerable and they're facing their fears and then they fly home. So if anything, I would just like to do this for a longer period of time. What about you, bud? Um, it's hard. To, I think it's hard to answer because the reality of what we think is a dream gig is probably not as dreamy as, as you would hope it to be. Like I, Sean Pelton has a dream gig, but there's a lot of downtime. He probably spends most of the time, uh, you know, drinking coffee and rather than playing drums right because it's a lot of downtime between rehearsals and stuff but i mean what a steady gig to be playing saturday night live every saturday so part of that says that would be and not have to leave home you can basically take yeah. a cab to work every day that would be a dream gig but uh, and it's the same thing with like playing with i don't know sting or someone like that that seems sure. like it would be an amazing dream gig but there is definitely a hierarchy between the artist and the band. So you're probably mm -hmm. not going to get flown around in a private jet, even though he is. Um, right. And you're not going to get the best dressing room, and he will. So for me, a dream gig would be actually a band member and someone that's just getting the best treatment. The Rolling Stones. Like the, if I could just be Charlie Watts and right. know that I'm only going to play amazing gigs and I'm going to be treated like royalty. And it's not going to be a lot of shows. I'm not going right. to be out on the road 300 days a year. So something like that would be a dream. It's a obviously a completely real unrealistic dream, but um, yeah, I mean, dream gigs. It's I've just seen enough of guys like, man, you have a great gig, and he's like, yeah, but I'm on the road like you know eight months out of the year, and I don't see my family, and even something like Snarky Puppy. I mean, just to keep doing what they're doing, they've got three to four drummers rotating in and out just because it's such a demanding thing, and they gig so yeah. much, and they never stop, and they're 
I, I, I don't know how Mike Leach does it, the, the leader. I mean, he's – dude, he just never stops, man. Yeah, it's out of control. That's just his life, yeah. Yeah, so I think, uh, like you said, I think you have to almost create your dream gig for yourself because we're all such unique individuals and everything looks uh, – you're right. Sting would be – or for me, Phil Collins, that would be the dream gig. He does what, uh, one gig for 17 years now? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I guess that fit my schedule perfectly. I get to keep doing what I'm doing. So, all right. And uh, who was the second audio question you wanted to get to? Uh, Bo. All right, Bo. Hi, Mike Johnston. Hi, Mike Dawson. My name is Bo Askew, and I'm a drummer from Northern California. My question for you guys today is regarding recording session work. So I'm someone who has already started to record for local artists, but I want to know where I can take it from here. So what advice would you give to a drummer that's just trying to get into the recording world? Great question. Boza has been a private student of mine, and honestly, he's another monster. And he's starting to get quite a bit of his own attention on social media for his his playing. So uh, what do you have for him, buddy? Um, kind of the hard truth is if you really want to do session work, you've got to live in L.A. or Nashville. There's really... New York is kind of off the table for session work. Uh, and Nashville is becoming locked up, too. I mean, it's there's so many guys down there that that's how they're you know paying for food for their kids is doing sessions. So you can't just waltz in and like, hey, let me do a demo session. Eh, no, I don't right. think so. You're going to probably yeah. starve for about four or five years before yeah. you even get a chance. Um, L.A., the same thing. I mean, it's it's really wicked so if you want to get into like the legit high-end level you got to be in those two cities and you've got to be willing to wait tables for half a decade yep uh other than that i think it's just starting in your own network you just have to just record 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 you have to put stuff out you have to you know i think every every session drummer that i know they've they started out getting work from their friends or from their peers or from their bands yep and then it just branches out so you like, I don't think calling a studio and, and dropping off a demo is going to get you anything. I don't think, you know, harassing producers in your city are going to get you any work. Right. But it's going to be the guitarist in your band who then be, starts writing songs. You know, writing songs and needs drums and you sure. record them for them. That's what's done it for me. I've played in a couple bands where the primary songwriter is also a producer. So I just become the guy that does the drum tracks. And, and that's branched out to other people yep. word of mouth. So it's kind of like a spider web. You have to... You have to go for everything. You have to work for free to kind of just get your build up your your yeah. resume. Yeah, I mean the thing is, if you did a free gig for somebody just so that you could build up your resume, it's pretty rare that they're gonna. They don't want to tell anyone that they used a free drummer, so they're not going to go bragging. We used Mike Dawson for free, but right. someone's going to say who played drums on that. And at that moment, it's like, well, that person that wants to hire you now doesn't know you did it for free. So yeah. now you have your your price involved. The other thing is I think we really – and this is going to you, Bo. You really have to redefine what being a session drummer is because it is not the 80s. It is not the 90s. Being a session drummer means hopping from you know people's living room to other people's living room where they call their living room the live room. And, and they're getting great recordings out of it. I mean I'm always shocked when – I hear some amazing production, and I'm like, "Oh my god, where did you track this?" And I go, like, oh, "This is in my house." I'm like, what? Yeah. yeah, yeah. My buddy came in, played drums, and you know. And so, so, anyways, you kind of have to redefine what being a session drummer is. Uh, but it is possible. It's just like Mike said, you're gonna have to just keep chipping away at it. It's there's no breaking into the session world. It's it's 
just slipping through one crack and then another and another. Yeah. And then eventually, as you're slipping through those cracks, other people are quitting and they're not doing it anymore. And they're not trying to achieve their dreams. And they all keep falling off around you and you're the one that's left. And I've always believed in the A for effort thing. I really think my band got a record deal because all the good bands in my town got signed. And the labels were like, well, who's left? Deftones got <laughs> signed. Papa Roach got signed. Cake got signed. Oh, there's Mike's band. Yeah, let's give him a record deal. Like, there's no one left to sign. So it, I think it comes down. Obviously, I don't feel that way about your drumming bow, but I'm just saying just outlast. Outlast yeah. everyone, and, and you'll you, be and the one left. You have to have a studio of your own. That's yes. just an absolute prerequisite. Everyone does. Matt Chamberlain does. Steve Jordan does. Aaron Sterling does. Sean Pelton does. Aaron Comas does. There, I don't, yeah. Near Z does. I don't think Chris McHugh does. Shannon Forrest does. Even the guys who are playing all the hit records, they're still taking custom gigs in their own studio that aren't hit records. So yep. you have to have that because that's that's what gets me work is it's just a guy say, hey, I need a track in the next two days. Can you just do it? We, I don't have to be there. Just do it. I know you're going right. to get good sounds. I know it's going to be fine. Cool. So, I love it. And, I mean, as long as you can get, like you said, clean, decent sounds, you can just give them the stems and they, they get they can mix it. They can yeah. layer in samples if they need to. So, All right. Well, guys, we do have to run kind of early, so we'll give you our picks of the week and get out of here because I've got a camp starting. Sorry about the bingo words. Um, so pick of the week this time for me is something that I've fielded more questions about over any other aspect of my drumming or my gear. No one has asked more questions about anything than they have asked about what metronome do I use uh, in I knew that's videos. what it was going to be. <laughs> and it has been re-released. Thank God. Oh, so for man. a while, Visual Metronome was out of the App Store. It is back. They have made it better than ever by not changing a damn thing. <laughs> and it's exactly the same as it was. I guess it doesn't crash as much as it used to. But Visual Metronome is back. So if any of you guys have 99 cents to spend... It's the one when every time you see, I get, I think the two people that use it the most would be myself and uh, James Murphy. Oh yeah, yeah. James Murphy uh, from uh, Blue Man Group. So it, if you see those, that big metronome that just goes one, two, three, and <laughs> that's the one. Visual metronome. It's back in the app store. Hallelujah. Oh man. <sighs> Praise the app gods. All so right. My <laughs> pick is um, I had this this record on vinyl and I just. Never really listened to it much. It's the Dave Brubeck Quartet at Carnegie Hall with Joe Morello on drums. Ooh. And there's a cut called Castilian Drums that is essentially a 10-minute drum solo. Um, and I often forget that John Bonham was a huge fan of Joe Morello. So ah. if you listen to this track, it's essentially Moby Dick. He's really? Playing, he's playing with his hands. He's doing all the triplet licks. Really? Bonham basically got his whole idea from this. So it's wow. the track is Castilian Drums. It's a live recording. At, Do you know what at year Carnegie this was? Uh, 1963. Wow, how cool is that? Yeah, and the drum sounds. I mean, because I was just uh, going to ask, how does Morello, it sound? Morello was different than most of the jazz guys. He didn't use tiny little drums. He used the you know big drums tuned kind of wide open. And so Bonham. Or, yeah, Bonham. I mean, it's <laughs> that is great. It's Bonham in a tuxedo, man. <laughs> oh, beautiful! And some glasses. <laughs> and some glasses. Oh, that's so cool, man. That is awesome, man. Castilian drums off of the Debrug Bet Quartet at Carnegie Hall. It's it's that's amazing. easy to say. All right, everybody. So check that out. Get your visual metronome app going, and everything will be good. Everyone, thanks so much for listening to us. Thanks for all the great comments and the ratings on 
Podcast One or iTunes or wherever you find this podcast. We definitely appreciate it. And everyone, have an amazing week. Get a bunch of practice in, and Mike and I will see you next week. Later. <laughs> it's always so chilly. Later. Later. Peace. Whatever. Get Got out of here. Stuff to do. <laughs> Going to lunch with Questlove. Later. <laughs>